Hello and welcome to the Random Walks podcast. Today I have Pranam Chatterjee, who is currently a Carlos Mwawaski Research Fellow at Harvard Medical School in Professor George Church's lab, where he is developing state-of-the-art algorithms and high-throughput experimental screens to interrogate germ cell development. Pranam is a recent PhD graduate of the MIT Media Lab, and before that, he completed his BS in Computer Science and Molecular Biology at MIT itself. Pranam has multiple areas of interest, and he has been intimately acquainted with developing robust technologies, utilizing both experimental and computational methodologies. Welcome, Pranam. Thank you, Abhijan. How are you? As well as 2020 allows us to be, because that seems to be the only correct answer in what has been a <laughs> phenomenal year on multiple fronts. Absolutely, yeah. It's been a crazy year here too. We, you know, we've, um, you know, been trying to be as productive as possible, and I'm sure we're going to go into a lot of that uh, during the next hour or so. That's true. So coming to this, so how did it all sort of start for you? You have been in science for quite a while now. You completed a PhD. Right now you're doing, uh, you're a research fellow in a top lab at a top university. So basically, how did it all start for you? Did you have any mentors to look up to in science or any family members who inspired you to take up a path in science? You know, that's a great question. And when I answer this question, a lot of people are very surprised because I actually in college began my journey in uh, by majoring in religion. So I was a religion major when I started college at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire in the US. You know, I studied East Asian religions like Hinduism, Buddhism, um, you know, Jainism, as well as uh, like Judaism as well. And so, you know, I I was very interested in a wide variety of subjects and I wasn't even intending to go into science until I had a realization after my, uh, you know, first few years of college that first I was probably, uh, you know, I was probably meant to do science. My, um, my both my parents are scientists. Um, so I was very, I was always connected with that growing up. And second, after an initial research experience that I did on the side while majoring in religion, I worked at Harvard Medical School during my summers, um, and uh, my my mentor, Dr. Vicky Busiotis, you know, she really inspired me to think about the world and think about life much more deeply than you know than like reading a book um, and then reading like um, you know scriptures. That was one way of thinking about life. But I got really excited about thinking of life from a scientific perspective, and after that, you know, um, I, I really spent a lot of time diving deep into scientific detail, into experiments. And I even transferred, as you mentioned, I transferred to MIT later where I studied, you know, computer science and biology, which I think represent both, like, if you think about religion representing more of what we used to, or how we've been thinking for so many generations as a human race to, to biology, which is kind of the present of how we view ourselves and how we view the world. It, we study the world through a biological lens and computer science, which is the future, I would say, you know, artificial intelligence and, and, and machine learning. These are topics that I studied that I feel represent the future of how we will not only understand the world, but how we'll engineer it. And so I feel like I'm just right here in Boston, you know, in MIT and Harvard, trying to understand how life works and why we're here and how we can make ourselves better. So that's kind of a short answer to your question. That's quite fun from studying religion and life from a 
metaphorical and spiritual point of view to actually delving into the scientific origins of life. That was quite right. a leap. So how did it, so after transitioning, after coming to MIT, so how was your experience in sciences? Did you have any prior research experience? As you said, you already, your parents were in science. So were you intimately acquainted with research? Did you get any hands-on experience during high school or after contemplating religion for a while in undergrad, you delved deep into exploring the intricacies of science? You know, that story, uh, Abhigyan, started much earlier. You know, we, when I was in, when I was in high school, and even back in like middle school, like my early grade school days, I was first very involved in like studying religion, right? Like that was something that I was always interested in um, because it was just something so fascinating to see how other people think. But I was also, as you mentioned, was very intimately involved in science. Not only did I, you know, study other, you know, subjects, I was very much involved in engineering projects. You know, we had, when I was in high school, we had a very interesting uh, team of students that worked together to like uh, develop new inventions. And we would go over the country to like Stanford, MIT, Harvard, um, where we would present our inventions. So we were like, I'm not gonna say that I just dived into science randomly. We were very much, me and my um, you know fellow classmates, we were very much into science from an early, age and then when i came to you know mit even before i would be working in uh, research labs you know i started working in research labs when i was in high school at the end of my high school year working on plant biology and then transitioning to immunology at my harvard medical school lab um, and this is where and really what was inspiring in those uh you know in those experiences was that i had mentors that were really intimately they cared about what my success would be in science. You see, they were not just, uh, you know, undergrads usually work under a postdoc who work under a grad student, you know, and they're just somewhere down the chain of scientists. But for me, from an early, from, from the earliest point, I was doing my own projects. I was having a say in how I did my science. You know, we worked, when I was, when I was in Harvard Medical School, we worked on a very important molecule in biology called PD-1, which is now the topic of, you know, a lot of uh, cancer immunotherapies target this molecule. We were one of the, some of my work as an undergrad was some of the first work to understand the biology of this molecule. So really what I'm trying to say is that I've been really fortunate to not only have been started in science at an early age, but have mentors that have pushed me to be successful in science and to study you know, uh, systems and molecules and engineer, um, you know, new system, like new uh, research tools that are exciting and that people care about. And that's why I'm here today. That's quite a fun story. And you're talking about plant biology and your original, you know, forays with it. Reminds me of another giant figure of science, Gregor Mendel, who was also pretty much interested in religion. He was a parishioner, as well as he did some phenomenal work in laying the foundations of modern day genetics. So that's quite a fun relation we could sort of draw out. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, like that, I think that's something that we don't think about enough. Um, is that we, we, there is always an intimate connection between different means of thought. You know, science is one way of, uh, as a human race, that we approach the world, right? Because we want to understand things in a more empirical and logical way. But we have to admit, as scientists and engineers, that not everyone thinks that way, right? There are a lot of people who 
like to view the world from a religious and spiritual lens, and those people still have a lot to offer. You know, I like to learn from people who think differently, and that's why I studied religion and philosophy, and then eventually came to science because I was more, I felt like my way of thinking more was aligned with how science does things. That's quite true. And in today's times, there's a sense of tribalism that sort of pervades a lot of conversations. It's either you are good or you are bad. There is no in between. And right. rather than the shades of gray, there's a narrative of everything being completely black and completely white. And there is a less sort of reason and less sort of motivation for people to actually go and understand the other side's point of view. And that's why there is an increase in partisanship and there's an increase in people vehemently holding on to their beliefs. This was something right. that we actually even saw during the COVID-19 pandemic. There were people who actually split into camps of maskers and anti-maskers. The right. very simple issue of masking itself became a political issue. And this was something that would have been incomprehensible to any of our forefathers in India or in America, who basically, it was a time-bound tradition when the colonies were there, whenever there was used to be a pandemic or an epidemic breaking out, considering the low population, then entire ports used to be quarantined and churches used to be quarantined. And there used to be no sort of vehement notion of partisanship creeping in. But today, it's itself a political issue. You have one side of the political spectrum sort of advocating for one point of view and the other side vehemently opposing it. And this is something that we have yeah. also sort of seen in science, but science as a whole, something that we miss out a lot. In science, it's not the person who proposes the theories who matters, it's basically the strength of the theories that matter. So anything I love narrating is like, Einstein was the one who propounded relativity. At the same time, he had some serious objections about quantum mechanics and which were eventually wrong. But right. that did not, his vehement objections of quantum mechanics neither negates quantum mechanics as a true theory nor negates his work in relativity. We both can test, we sort of can test his opinions on both on the scientific merits rather than in those tribalistic merits. He was wrong about one thing, so he has to be wrong about the other thing. Right, you know, that's actually very, you bring up so many good points there. And I do think there are a few reasons why we are in this boat today. Um, you know, like, first of all, we do, we still unfortunately in science and engineering do value the person over the science sometimes. And we do value who is doing the talking versus what's actually being talked about. The mask issue is a great example of how we as scientists have not done a good enough job of um, first communicating why we're doing what we're doing um, and also not bringing our perspective or the, the evidence that we have you know, accumulated as researchers to people who cannot understand it well. You know, like in America, we have a very partisan divide. We just had an election and it was, it demonstrated how divided we are as a country. And it's unfortunate because when you see people who do wear masks and people who are against wearing masks, it is really drawn, divided by party lines in our country. And you would be like, hey, whether, well, science doesn't care about party, right? And that's true. Nature and the virus, they don't care who you are. But what we, but what is unfortunate is that we've still become very tribal in a, like scientists, all scientists 
you know, think very, are very liberal and, 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 and you know, I would say more open-minded about different, uh, you know, people and, 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 and society while you have, you know, most scientists do not prescribe to the other side's perspective. And even though science is nonpartisan, the people are. And so when science becomes too people-centric and people-oriented and it's about you and not about the science, then this is what happens, right? And we are not in an area, we're not in a place that, you know, is a very in conducive for scientific thought right now because we are still trying our best to convince people that even the most basic principles are something that they should accept. And if, until we do that better, Abhigyan, we will still be in this situation. Masks are one issue, but I mean, you can take this to, you know, even just like, uh, you know, the future of science. You know, I work on CRISPR, right? And CRISPR is something that is going to really impact people's lives because when you can do gene editing, right, which is what CRISPR does, it's going to inevitably have an effect on life, right? Ed DNA is the core, you know, molecule of what makes us who we are as living organisms. If we can change it, we're going to be able to change a lot of things. And I'm afraid that if we don't communicate and we don't make it about, you know, the science and the effects of our science, you know, people are going to just, again, be tribalistic about the outcomes of this technology. And then, we, you know, and then what will end up happening is that we'll have a huge percentage of people that will be against the use of this technology and a huge percentage that will be in, for of, in, in favor of it. But there will be no real argument or no real debate about what the scientific merits are, but more about am I on the pro-CRISPR side or am I on the anti-CRISPR side, right? It needs to, we need to have a much more, you know, soul-searching, uh, uh, you know, dialogue about where science is and what science can do for our society going forward. That's very true. And so just a heads up to our audience, CRISPR stands for Clustered Regulatory Intercepts Special Palindromic Repeat, if I'm right. And basically, it's a very powerful genome editing tool, which many, which sort of came into prominence in the last decade or so. And the subject of the 2020 Nobel Prize in Chemistry was CRISPR, the tool of genome editing, and it was awarded to two phenomenal scientists, Jennifer Dutton and Emmanuel Charpentier. And the story of CRISPR, like many stories of science and many stories in today's world, subtlety is missing. And that's also a story of CRISPR. Many would like to think just because the Nobel Prize went to two fantastic scientists, it's only they and they alone who devised it. But there were thousands and thousands of people. And the story of CRISPR had started way back in the 80s rather than in 2010s, where it actually came into prominence. So this yeah. was something as we talked about tribalistic notions. So this sort of entirely defines nuances missing from a lot of conversations these days, whether it's scientific or non-scientific. And the way sort of it's communicated to science, a lot of the role has to be the way media as well as social media hypes things up. It makes it impossible to have nuanced conversations. As we argued before, it's either you're for or you're against. There is no middle ground that can be have. And this was a sort of a very, very dangerous pathway for our future of humanity as a whole, because something as powerful as genome editing, which even right now is still in its nascent 
stages. We just can't sort of mutate some cyborg human who will start walking amongst us. But the thing is, we actually need to communicate it clearly rather than sort of playing into the scientific or science fictional notions that the media loves to do. And eventually, there is sort of going to be a breaking point, just like stem cell technology has had somewhere within the last 15, 20 years, when it became an actual partisan issue on which an election was fought. Right. No, absolutely. I think you make, you make some real, like really something that you mentioned at, at the first part of your uh, statement was that, you know, CRISPR is, it, it, it is really in a completely, um, you know, a, a tool not only that we as scientists discovered, it's something that nature gave us, right? CRISPR uh, for the audience as, um, you know, is pretty much a bacterial immune system, right? Bacteria utilize CRISPR as a way to protect themselves against viruses. Uh, you know, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, who you mentioned won the Nobel Prize in chemistry, you know, they were just one of the first few people to uh, really show us that CRISPR is what we call an RNA-guided system. Basically, it's a system that can target any DNA sequence using a, sequ using a, a small sequence of RNA and a protein called Cas9. And so, you know, all of that work was not done by them. Right. There were like, as you mentioned, there was so much basic biology research that happened to lead us that allowed us to understand bacterial immunity that led us to realize uh, and to do the initial experiments as a field that this was a potential gene editing tool. People argue that, you know, should it have been Jennifer and Emmanuel who won the Nobel Prize? I, I mean, the arguments are kind of weird because Obviously, I'd like to award the Nobel Prize to everyone who, uh, you know, contributed to the discovery of CRISPR. I mean, you know, Virginia Sixness, uh, Mojica, Francisco Mojica, um, you know, Ishino from Japan. These people were instrumental in allowing us to understand how bacteria utilize the system. But to be fair, Jennifer and Emmanuel were the first ones to show how to leverage the system um, biochemically to do gene editing. And then George Church and Fong Zhang uh, took that first and showed that this could be used in human cells and mammalian cells for gene editing. So as you can see, here's a huge spectrum of people that have contributed to the field. I mean, I like to say that I even contributed to the field in some way, right? We, you know, what we have done, maybe this is a good time for me to explain what type of work we have done. You know, before, just a few years ago, even like just as early as like, you know, three years ago, CRISPR could only target about say 10% uh, of the entire genome because uh, there is a specific requirement beside the DNA sequence that you want to target that you need to have two Gs, right? DNA is A, C, G, and T. You better have two Gs beside your target sequence or CRISPR would not be able to target that. And if you do the math, right, um, that really limits you to less than 12.5% of the genome. And so, and so, that was a limitation. No matter how great CRISPR was, we were still limited to that 12.5%. You know, what I, what I worked on for the last few years was engineering CRISPR so that I don't have, I'm not limited to, or we're not limited to 12.5% of the genome. And we've engineered new enzymes and new CRISPR tools that can now target over 70% of the genome. And actually, I want to tell you here today that, you know, I've been engineering some new systems right here in the lab where I am right now. And we're close to 100% of all DNA sequences that we can now target. This is that this shows you that you know, despite 
it's not about one person. It shows you that this field requires a concerted effort, not only with the scientists and the engineers, but also with society to say, hey, look, we have to solve these problems and we have so many things that we need to improve on this system. And then when we have this system improved, how do we actually have it utilized in a, in a useful and good way? This is a conversation that is not just up to me, not just up to Jennifer, not just up to Emmanuel, or not even just up to like Fong or George, George Church, who's my uh, advisor. It's up to everyone because this is a tool that will impact everyone. And, you know, we need to, we need to put aside our personal egos, I would say. Um, and we need to really come together and say, you know, wh what do we want to do? You said, you mentioned stem cells. That became a very partisan issue just to, you know, because we could not agree what are the right ways of utilizing this technology. CRISPR is 10 times more, um, you know, uh, consequential because it can affect us as a human being. It doesn't affect cells in a dish, right? We need to come together and we need to decide what, how best to use this technology. And if we do that, I think CRISPR will be a very successful tool uh, in the future. That's very true. And so that was a very fun, uh, great way you detail your current work. So how did you sort of start working with CRISPR? Was it a random project you just came across and took a short arc? Or was it something you read about and you were pretty much prepared to do as you headed into grad school? Or just like a, as many things in science, it was just another serendipitous pathway that sort of made you and CRISPR mingle with each other. And then a lifelong fascination was born. You know, I think people, this is a really interesting, I always, I like to say that I have very interesting background because nothing makes sense when I, and, and when I, uh, when I explain why I do what I do. Uh, when I, you know, I was a computer science undergrad at MIT, right? And so I was not really certain what I wanted to work on in grad school, which is normal, right? A lot of undergrads are pretty new to science and new to the concept of choosing a project. Um, you know, I came, I, I came to the media lab at MIT. It's not the most normal place in the world. The research done here ranges from, you know, arts research to robotics to, uh, you know, to big data, to kids' toys. There's so many different types of research done at the MIT media lab. And my professor that I joined was Joe Jacobson. Joe Jacobson is the founder and the inventor of the Kindle technology, the Amazon Kindle. Um, and so he developed the underlying technology called electronic ink, you know, the, the display on the Kindle. And it was invented in this room where I'm sitting right now, um, which is kind of cool. And so when I joined the lab, you know, Joe had not really done much biology. Biology was not yet something that was, uh, you know, some very established here in the media lab. And so when he, I, he came, he was like, you know, you can do whatever you want. I'm not going to tell you what projects to do, which is kind of abnormal. Most grad uh, mentors have a specific project for a specific grant that they need you to do as a grad student. And when you do it, you graduate, right? That's how grad school works. But for me, he was like, you know, we have a lot, you, we have money, Media Lab has a lot of funding, just what do you want to do? And I had, for the previous years, I'd just been really intrigued by, you know, what are the big technologies of the future, right? Obviously, artificial intelligence, AI, you know, robotics, these things are going to be consequential to how we live as human beings. But then I saw something like CRISPR and I was like, and we can all agree on this, is that, that when you can change DNA, that is a huge game changer, right? That is something that 
you know, we're not just changing the society and the world and the technology, we're changing ourselves, we're changing human beings, we're changing living organisms. I really felt like we were, when I joined grad school in 2016, that this was the right time to work on CRISPR and make it actually a useful technology. Um, so that's, so we built this lab from scratch uh, at the Media Lab, you know, we, because the Media Lab is not where there was much biological research, we built a lab from scratch, you know, one way that I think was unique, I had a, a, another uh, collaborator, uh, his name is Noah, you know, we were not, you know, there are big CRISPR labs out there, right, like Jennifer Doudna, Feng Zhang, David Liu, these labs are 30, 40 people big, they have a infinite resources and money to do big experiments. Me and Noah and I, we're computer scientists. And so, you know, we really had no chance to have an impact on CRISPR unless we utilized our unique skill sets. And so really what allowed us to make these advances, like, you know, allowing us to expand the, you know, editing space uh, for CRISPR was utilizing our computational skills where we designed uh, our discovery algorithmic pipelines to identify which enzymes and which proteins and molecules we wanted to build in the lab. Because yeah, we could spend, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars just building things in the lab all the time like other, and then seeing what works for gene editing. But we were like, we don't have that resources or that uh, funding. We're gonna write the algorithms, which is gonna tell us what to build and what to test. And those algorithms ended up working very beautifully. And so that is kind of the way I, as a researcher, approach things. We look at problems more from how can computation solve the problems of biology that won't require like infinite resources to do it. And that's kind of how we came into CRISPR. CRISPR was the, really the most exciting field and it's still a growing field. Um, I utilize, I still build a lot of new CRISPR tools but now is a really exciting time to take CRISPR and utilize it for other projects, which is what I'm doing at Harvard as a, my, in my postdoc. That's an amazing story of how you actually got into CRISPR and the mentors you find all along. So you're talking yeah. about sort of applying your computational skills and bringing that to the CRISPR game and sort of revolutionizing the field sort of reminds us of how science doesn't happen in silos. In high school, so the way science is taught in school and notions of physics, chemistry, bio, maths, and many things, those are sort of silos. A physicist will only do physics, or a biologist only does bio, and he doesn't do any mathematics or computation. In reality, science is inherently a very interdisciplinary thing. It's not just a buzzword. It's actually how science works. The path from A to B is not a direct route. It's rather an intricate maze that one needs to map around and then sort of traverse to sort of get from point A to point B. And that's something we have seen throughout history. So one of the, most of the giants of structural biology in the so structural biology revolution from Kluck to sort of uh, Aaron Klug, Rosalind Franklin, many of them, Sidney Brenner, many of them trained as physicists and they actually brought their skills into the biology game doing it in the structure thing. And so this is what you are currently doing by bringing in your computational skills to the CRISPR game and sort of revolutionizing the field. You know, that's, you know, exactly. And that's how, you know, we have noticed that the big advances in science and engineering have happened when two fields are starting to merge together. I think you may have seen the news like a few days ago that uh, AlphaFold from Google's DeepMind was a, a, a folding out. So when you say structural biology, you know, physics allowed us to do structural biology. And now look, we have 
uh, deep learning and artificial intelligence a lot helps us to fold proteins, right? And so like, you know, what I realized early on was that the reason I even majored and studied computer science was I was, you know, I was aware that this is what's going to be the tool to solve a lot of these problems in different fields. I didn't know I was going to go into CRISPR, but I realized that there was a place for computation in CRISPR. You know, we could utilize these tools to better engineer uh, actual wet lab and experimental, um, you know, like enzymes and molecules. You know, I still utilize computation, right? We, um, I do believe that the big data revolution, right, we're seeing with artificial intelligence and machine learning will even more um, be married with science because, you know, as we develop better algorithms in computer science, we're also developing more high throughput and um, you know, uh, more robust screening technologies in research. My project uh, at Harvard uh, kind of merges the two, right? I'm developing you know, algorithms that can look at RNA sequencing data that we're collecting in the lab and then be able to make a prediction about what are the best transcription factors or best uh, you know, biological molecules that are affecting the process of germ cell development. This is a, something that I think is the next frontier of research. And you know what's best about all of that is really the tool that makes these two things come together is CRISPR, right? And CRISPR, like, CRISPR is, allows us to go in and test different factors, allows us to interrogate different genes, right? We can knock out a gene, we can insert a gene, we can activate a gene with CRISPR. So now, Abhijan, we are doing three things that are the future of all technology, artificial intelligence, high throughput screening, which is in, in like sequencing, which is like hugely impactful, and CRISPR, all three merge together to solve a really, I mean, the problem I'm solving, I think is really exciting. Like, you know, hopefully being able to derive a germ cell, a gamete, like an oocyte from like a stem cell, um, but also to solve other big biological questions. I think you're right. I think we're, if we're gonna keep moving forward in science, we have to think in, in an interdisciplinary way. And that's not only interdisciplinary between fields, it's also interdisciplinary between people, right? We wanna bring new people into science. We wanna bring more diversity into science. And we also wanna see people with very different skill sets contributing to the problems that we're trying to solve. That's very true. And you're talking about high throughput screening, which you sort of merge with CRISPR and you know, computing so to sort of devise technologies and therapeutics sort of reminds me of the phenomenal role sequencing has played in sort of combating the COVID-19 pandemic. So within five days after this, uh, we, had the, we had the entire viral genome sequence once the virus was released, SARS-CoV-2, and in January, and as we talked about, so in a recent interview of Dr. Fauci, the America's top infectious doctor, he talked about as soon as he got his hand on the structure, the genomic sampling of the virus, he sort of he sort of started planning for the vaccines. He spoke it in the context of the Pfizer vaccines. And even right now, we have the, the recent cover that came out yesterday of Science Translation Medicine had the genomic mapping of Austria's viral genome. So sequencing is something, high throughput screening is something that's going to play a very, very big role. And that's something sort of even underrated, even in the scientific community of the potentials we have with respect to screening and high throughput sequencing. 
you know, we wouldn't even, like you said, we wouldn't even be here right now where vaccines are readily available, where, you know, therapeutics, like high throughput screens for therapeutic compounds that we were able to do as a scientific community in the last few months. None of this would be, have been possible without all the years of work uh, to build these new next generation sequencing tools, structural biology, right? Like even the structure, all the new cryo-EM and X-ray crystallography, that helped us to understand how the viral proteins fold to design better drugs. And, um, you know, actually, uh, this is a great time for me to talk about our recent work. I don't know if you saw it, but we published, I just published an, a paper a few weeks ago on a new SARS-CoV-2 therapeutic platform um, where we utilize the structure of the of the viral protein and we're able to engineer peptides that bound to the virus and tag the virus for degradation. It was, a, yeah, people, a lot of people commented that this technology and this you know, new way of therapeutic uh, targeting may not be, you know, useful right now because it will take more years of development. But what they said was this could be potentially useful for future pandemics. So what I'm saying is that even if some technologies are yet still not mature, right, we are still moving forward and being prepared for the next time a pandemic hit, for the next time, you know, cancer, for solving big diseases like cancer that we're still like, you know, fighting every day in the scientific community. You know, we, all these technologies have started coming together at really the right time. Um, as Dr. Fauci said, these vaccines would not have been possible if we did not know the viral genome because now, you know, Pfizer and Moderna were able to design mRNA, um, you know, sequences that were the most immunogenic simply because we knew what the target, what the virus looks like. If we didn't know what the viral genome was, we wouldn't be able to design those mRNA sequences, which are literally just snippets of the viral genome. And so, you know, we relied on everything coming together for us to be where we are. And honestly, this is going to save a lot of lives, right? Simply because we are, you know, able to do science at such a rapid, robust, and, uh, you know, effective pace. That's so very true. And I believe the paper that you sort of released recently came out in Communications Biology, if I'm not wrong. So, that's yeah, correct. Yeah, I, did, I didn't have a chance to go through it. So, yeah, th that's a phenomenal story. And as you said, like, uh, so basically, uh, you, you are currently based at the Harvard Medical School. And before this, for your PhD, you were at the MIT Media Lab. So that Boston cluster of MIT, Harvard, and the associated hospitals and research centers and the biotechnology startups that are sort of like the biotech Silicon Valley that's out right. there in Kendall Square. So that has been sort of the hub of fighting against the COVID-19 pandemic in America. I have sort of had a chance to interview and talk with quite a lot of folks, both in random works and sort of my good friends. And from what I've learned, the MIT Harvard cluster has sort of been a powerhouse of scientific research, as well as testing, therapeutics, and a hell lot of things during this COVID-19 pandemic. So yeah, yeah, Moderna, yeah. Moderna is just down the street, right? Like, I mean, it's literally like what, less than like a few blocks from where I am now. I worked at Pfizer over the summer a few years ago, um, and it's just right down the street also. Like, we're just, like, this is a great place. And if you, Abhigyan, or anyone out there who's listening, you're always welcome to come visit, of course, after the pandemic is over, um, and then see really the, you know, the amazing uh, ability that we have here uh, to, to push out these therapeutics and vaccines and, uh, and you know, just like 
do exciting science. I'm really lucky, I would say. I'm not, you know, I, people say that, oh, you're so smart and you did it. I'm like, no, really, I have just been fortunate to be in a position where I'm given all these resources and have all these really smart people around me to solve problems with. I'm, I'm very fortunate. That's so very true. And so basically, was this sort of research bubbling research cluster that you would get at MIT was what drew you into your undergrad? Or once you had a taste of it during your undergrad, that's the reason you chose to stay back there for your grad school and for the postdoc? Yeah, you know, I am, I, I like to say that I am a very, um, I'm both, I, I, I used to be very both risk adverse, but I also I was very, um, uncertain right of what i wanted to do and i think the best place to play to put yourself when you're kind of uncertain about what kind of problems you wanted to solve is be in a place where there's a lot of potential and there's a lot of opportunities and really why i wanted to come not only stay at mit after my undergrad but also come to the media lab as a specific place is because i really didn't know what i wanted to do and i wanted the flexibility to go and uh mesh between different fields. If I didn't end up staying in academia, you know, I could go to industry in biotech, which is just like surrounding Kendall Square. Um, if I wanted to do research in artificial intelligence rather than, uh, you know, biology, I could do that as well. Um, you know, Kendall Square and MIT and Harvard all really are the, you know, is, are, is the mecca, I would think, of intellectual thought and also um, uh, of technological development. And obviously, we like to say Silicon Valley is also that and Silicon Valley is amazing for tech, but I would think that here is really where the future is. I think tech is right now, but biotech is probably the future. I think it'll be like even bigger of a field than, you know, the big tech is in Silicon Valley. You know, this is a, like you said, this is a huge reason why I wanted to stay here. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to be applying to like faculty positions in the next, you know, next month as well as the next year. And I really would love to stay in a place like this or go to somewhere that can grow to be a place like this. Because I think it'd be wonderful if more people had the same opportunities I did, because then we would be able to really expand what science is potential for the world very quickly. That's so very true. And as you said, having such a cluster sort of increases the number of potential collaborators, mentors, and people you can just talk to about your research and sort of collaborate on some random thing which you wouldn't have even imagined maybe a few days back. And this is something that's so very important. Science sort of evolves through collaboration rather than that myth of a solitary male genius that's generally peddled around in news media. And we as scientists have also have a lot of blame because the way prizes are doled out, it makes it seem like efforts of thousands and hundreds and thousands of people is just boils down to three people. And generally till date, they have been three white men who sort of get yeah. a plane ticket to Stockholm. And then people sort of make a perception of that's how science happens. But in reality, as you pointed out, science is a very collaborative endeavor and we are actually standing on the shoulder of giants. It's actually true. I, mean, I don't even know if we're standing on the shoulders of giants. I think we're standing on the shoulders of grad students, of postdocs, of all the young scientists that do all the work. For example, Jennifer Dowden, Emmanuel Charpentier, Feng Zhang, George Church, they didn't do the science. They were the professors of the people who did the science. And like they did a great job of mentoring these people and directing projects. But think about like the authors of the CRISPR paper, Martin Janek, um, you know, Ines Fonfara, uh, you know, like F. N. Rand, like these 
like some people you forget about because they're not the ones who win the Nobel Prize. Like, yeah, they may get a professorship, you know, that's great for them, but like we forget about them. And that's kind of unfortunate because, you know, everyone makes it happen. And if anything, the people who do a lot of the work may be the ones that get forgotten the most because they're the ones actually in the trenches doing the work. It's the less glamorous part of the research. The person who gives the talks, the person who presents the work, who is the last senior author on the paper, they're the ones who, you know, really benefit the most. But they, I hope, you know, George is my, George Church is my uh, advisor at Harvard. You know, he is really good about doing his best to, uh, you know, acknowledge all the people that go into this work. These prizes, like the Nobel Prize, I think are more, you know, harm than good because it makes people, even young scientists, think that the only way that their work is going to be recognized or that, you know, their science is going to be recognized is if they, um, you know, really, really stand out, right? If they really become very egotistical and, and just focus on themselves. But I learned very quickly, you know, I am in a lab where I was working with very few people. Like, like you said, the lone solitary scientist. Honestly, for a while, I was a lone solitary scientist. And what I realized was you could do some good work as a lone solitary scientist, but you cannot do very big work. You cannot, you cannot have huge impact and you cannot really do projects that are going to scale to a lot of different types of you know, fields. For example, I realized that a lot of my projects were being limited by the lack of uh, you know, certain experiments that I couldn't do, but other labs could. And so I just contacted my professor and I, we contacted the other um, you know, professors at you know, George in Harvard and at University of Massachusetts, um, you know, other labs. And guess what? They were like, yeah, we'd be happy to help with this project. And then it turned into like a one or two author paper to like a 10, 12 author paper. And that made the paper so much better. That made the science a lot better. And that made the impact a lot better, right? And so it was all a concerted effort between a lot of people to make it happen. I've learned firsthand that collaboration is the key to doing good science. It's the key to engineering and developing useful tools. And if we don't continue to do that and we become more and more solitary and we chase after fame and fortune and not after scientific you know, merit and, and really useful tools, you know, we're gonna suffer as a result. I think, I think we're going to, I, I'm very confident that scientists and engineers are, will continue to work together and build even bigger collaborations and hopefully we'll be able to show the world that, you know, like the, the vaccine or any therapeutic, this is a result of millions of people's work, not just a thousand, not just like five people at a company. Moderna, Pfizer, they wouldn't have done what they did without all the research that happened beforehand um, in the academic labs. And so I am really confident that wherever I go, I'll be able to lead a team of diverse people, right, to solve big problems, not just me solving problems by myself. That's so very true. And that point that you made about having diverse representation and all, these are issues. And in 2020, a lot of these issues came to the forefront, partly motivated by the pandemic and partly by the way things were happening. America had its Black Lives Matter movement, as well as other parts of the world. There was a reckoning with racial justice, climate change as a whole, and the way the way the pandemic arose in the first place. And as one of the most brilliant science writers of a generation so, uh, wrote in, in the Atlantic uh, that 
this is just one of the many pandemics to come because the way we are going is absolutely unsustainable. And in the very first episode of Random Works, I had Priyanka D'Souza, who is an urban planner in training at MIT, uh, Department of Urban Science and Planning. And she also talked about if this is the path we are headed forward to, then there is an eventual breaking point. And as usual, it's underrepresented people. It's the people without resources who will get the short shrift. They're the, the rich who can sort of take care of themselves, but it's actually the poor people and the common folks who don't even have the time to sort of give thought to these because for them, idea of putting bread in their basket is far more important and due to which they are the receiving end of these things. So for too long, there have been issues like gender disparity, bias and discrimination against underrepresented groups and science has been no different. So were you on the receiving end at any point of time considering your background as an, as an ethnic immigrant or sort of did you see anyone else experience it and you had to sort of step in and confront it? So could you just tell us a bit about that? Yeah, you know, like I, I grew up on the Alabama-Georgia border, which is, I don't know if for people who are not familiar with American geography, uh, that is probably where it is one of the whitest places, or I would say one of the most uh, segregated places in the United States, where people who are not white, uh, you know, are usually can at many times be treated very differently and very negatively uh, compared to white people where we are. And, you know, I grew up in a place where it was not easy to be you know, an immigrant, it was not easy to be a person of color. Um, and I would not say that my experiences were uh, any were more negative than the people than my African American, you know, my black brothers and sisters, uh, where I'm from, you know, they really have had it very difficult for many years, not only from, you know, a racial justice perspective, but also from a socioeconomic perspective, we are, you know, we don't do enough as a country to um, you know, address the situations that underlie a lot of the racial tension in our society. You know, when I came to MIT um, and Harvard, I realized that you know, I suddenly went from being you know, probably on the receiving end of a lot of discrimination um, or just you know, unfairness and inequity to actually being you know, in a position of privilege, right? As a, as an, as a male in science, even as an Indian, right? Indian people are relatively overrepresented in science comparatively to a lot of other ethnicities. You know, we come from a situation where in regular society, yeah, we may be underrepresented and we may be on the short end of, you know, like uh, of fairness in our society. But when it comes to science, we're on the privileged end. And it's very important for us, important for me to realize this duality because if we are not going to be active in in enforcing and 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 promoting diversity and uh, you know the education of underrepresented minorities and 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 bringing you know more uh, gender equality into the lab, then how, then how do we expect society to give us as immigrants a fair shot as well? We need to show our ability to make change where we can make change, which is where we have privilege, which is in science, and then hope, and then show that as an example of what can happen in society. You know, yeah, not everyone looks at science as the beacon of diversity, but that's a problem, right? That's something that we, science should be the beacon of diversity. It is the most, you know, science overall is the most forward-thinking 
um, you know, open-minded uh, approach to solving the world's problems. You know, we have, as scientists, we look at evidence and we solve things based on evidence. And if we're not looking at the problem of, you know, gender inequality, a racial, lack of racial diversity in science, then are we actually good scientists? You know, are we promoting an environment where science can be done uh, equitably and effectively? I think, Abhigyan, that if we, uh, you know, make very large strides to improve and increase diversity in our profess professorial ranks, in our graduate student ranks, that's going to be a positive ben net benefit to all of society. Why? Because then guess what? Then when we develop the next vaccine, when we develop the next therapeutics, when we develop uh, medicines and um, technologies that will benefit the world, people will believe, people from different ethnic groups, people from different backgrounds will look at the products of our work and say, this was done by everyone. This was done by people of all different backgrounds. And therefore I can appreciate the technology. If everything, ev all science is done by white, old white men, right? Then why shouldn't like a random person who doesn't understand science, but like, you know, exist, like exists in society, why would they look at the products of research and say that I can benefit from this, right? They'd be like, this is nothing to do with me. This is nothing, this comes from people that are completely different from me. Why should I trust them, right? Trust comes due to acceptance. And when we start accepting and working towards a more diverse scientific community, I think that's going to inevitably make the trust between society and science closer. We have a long way to go. I still see a lot of lack of diversity amongst my professors, a lot of lack of diversity amongst my fellow graduate students. We need to say that, you know, not everyone's going to have the same opportunities growing up but the potential is there for everyone to, to come into a lab, to come into science and make a difference and, and, and learn and, and pass that general knowledge down. If we do that well, I think we'll, we'll, we'll be better off as a society. That's so very true. And that's some incredibly great points you made. And this sort of connects to what we talked a bit earlier about, about the importance of communicating our work, importance of training the new generation. And this is something you have been very active in, communicating science and sort of teaching people, teaching undergraduates and all, taking on that responsibility. It's a responsibility to not only sort of learn and do things ourselves, it's also a responsibility to pass it on to others as well as communicate what we do. As you talked very recently a bit earlier about CRISPR, it's something that needs to be communicated very lucidly and very well to society. Otherwise, it's just another partisan issue. And this is something that's far more potent than stem cells or any other technology that has evolved in the last 20, 30 years. Right, you know, exactly. I think I, I this is like, you're really speaking to me very closely here because that's something that I've been very excited and very, um, you know, energized to do. When I came to MIT, I was like anyone else. Like I was not, I was learning how CRISPR uh, worked. You know, I was figuring it out myself and I realized that I was not the expert of anything, right? I wish someone was there to help me guide me through how CRISPR worked, how, you know, we can, um, you know, better communicate this to people who like me who didn't know anything about it. And so what I did when I was uh, at MIT was I actually taught the CRISPR class at MIT, right? Like I, um, I like, and guess who the students are? The students are not uh, biology undergrads or bioengineering or computer science. It is, it's not them. It's the general public. You know, I take 
students, I, I, there'll be students from like political science or Harvard or in different universities or even just random people in the Cambridge community. They'll come and sit in on my lectures. It's open to everyone. And I take them from the very, I don't assume any knowledge in biology when I teach this class. I teach it from what is DNA all the way to, you know, here's the structural components of how Cas9 edits DNA, right? And then I even bring the, and that's great. You know, you can teach a class, you can talk to people about how something works and why you should be excited about it and all the stuff you should know. But really it comes down to being in the uh, lab environment itself. And when you're in the lab environment itself, that's when you really connect with the research that is done. Um, and so when we, they came to the, uh, came to actually uh, the class, they were able to do research in the lab. I actually hosted a lab session here at the media lab where they would come after class and do experiments. And these are people that have never even touched a pipette before, right? And so this is, I think, if more scientists took the time and said that, yeah, we have, we teach regular students, but if we teach regular community members or general people in society how to do science and how we do science, they're going to be a lot more, not only just trusting of what we do, but they'll also be excited to know more about it and, and, and actually be a part of the process. So I agree, communication, 100% the most important thing. It's maybe more important than doing good science is communicating good science. Because when we write, when we do research, we have to write papers. But who reads the papers, Abhigyan? They, people read the people who read, who read the papers are other scientists. But how do we communicate it to, you know, average Joe on the street? Like we have to, uh, you know, we have to do a better job of explaining in a more basic sense why our work is important. Uh, do these kinds of interviews with, you know, with you or, you know, I try to give a lot of interviews to other people who just want to know more about CRISPR um, so that it can spread the knowledge and spread uh, awareness of the technology that's going to impact their lives very heavily. That's quite a great work you have been doing. So coming to this, so have you been sort of been contemplative about your career choices. Even right now, you're right at the forefront of the COVID-19 pandemic, battling the pandemic, devising therapeutics and therapies. And so have you have had any dilemmas or conflicts regarding anything, career choices, lab choices, or say work-life balance and all? Or was it something you were prepared to take or sort of like the benefits outweigh all the cons that have been out there? Yeah, it's, you know, people ask me this question, you know, I have a lot of people who are like, why don't you, you know, you have so many great ideas, you, uh, you know, you have patents on a lot of your work, why not you know, go into industry or, or, you know, maybe like become like a science communicator or do something else, right? I think this answer may not be satisfying to everyone. You know, I really love the concept of academia in, in an odd way, right? Like, I think like, academia is one of those places where you have a lot of freedom and flexibility to solve whatever problems excite you. Um, also, you're not necessarily tied to something by interests, uh, corporate interests, which is very important to me because I really like to be a very much of a, what we call a free thinker. I, I don't want to, I don't want to be limited by what other people want me to do. I want to do what I want to do, but I also want to be able to merge fields together. And that just doesn't happen very often outside of you know, a place like academia where you can just, you know, you can come to a lab and you can solve a problem that you're excited about. 
I'm, I really do want to uh, you know, be a faculty member one day simply because I'm very excited both by doing very innovative and new types of research that I can direct, but also being able to communicate that research back to students, right? I know you're an undergraduate, which is awesome that you, you know, are diving so deeply into science and uh, different scientific topics at, the, you know, at a pretty young age. But if I can communicate to other undergraduates like you the importance of doing good research, of how research can push you know, different fields forward, that's, I think, a lot of impact right there. And, and, and you know what's cool is that, take my professor, for example. He's a, you know, at, as my PhD advisor, he's a professor, right, at MIT, but he started a lot of companies himself. And so, you know, what I realized that even though I'm staying in, like, academia or, you know, the halls of universities, right, I'm not going out into the real world, you can if you, as a professor, as a scientist in academia, if you develop something and you patent it, you can go out and start a company. And then if you, if that company works, great. If it doesn't work, you can come right back to academia, you know, in your lab and solve really exciting problems. I look at academia less of a, you know, like the brown walls of, and the beautiful like halls of MIT and Harvard. I look at it as more like an incubator of, of, of solving and trying out things that are not profitable. Like it's not profitable to fail, right? Um, and this academia gives you the freedom to fail. You, you're not expected to succeed all the time. Um, and if I can always have that flexibility to fail, I will have the flexibility to solve very exciting questions. So I encourage everyone out there, you know, there will, there are great opportunities, not only in academia, but elsewhere, but wherever you are, it's, it's okay to not know what you're going to do immediately. And it's okay to say, Hey, I want to change what I want to do, you know, as when, whenever, whenever you feel like it, because that you need to be, I need to be honest with myself. You know, I, I love CRISPR. I think I've done some great work in CRISPR, but there's so many other things I'm excited about. And I hope to be able to do uh, those things in the future as well. That's an incredibly fantastic point you made. And this point about academia being one of the few places where your failures actually get celebrated and talked about rather than just being disdained or you being sort of being treated as an outcast just for shedding light. Because fortunately or unfortunately, the Bell Labs of the days of your doesn't exist anymore. Today, the corporate industrial research labs are out there. They're fully fledged to sort of optimize the money-making prowess of the big tech companies rather than advancing science in any fundamental way as much as they'd like to believe that they do it's far more the university academics who have been doing it and they have been doing it very successfully as the uh, stories about your advisor george church or moderners one of the moderners founders bob langer a phenomenal scientist a phenomenal engineer as well as a phenomenal inventor these people are the ones who actually epitomize taking leaps forward and it's not like everything that you have touched has turned into gold but the failures have been equally instrumental in their success as much as their all other successes that they had and this was a very important point that you made academia is one of the few places where you actually have the chance to fail as well as celebrate your failure because that actually in, sort of progresses science more than any other success can do and you know that's very you take you can take that even further there's so many projects in academia that you couldn't do at all in corporate in corporate America because they're just not profitable, right? Like you, 
you can't fail in industry because then investors will not invest, right? And people will not give you money to do research. But what about per the person who solves, um, you know, how cell the cellular motility or frogs, how they like jump from one leaf to another, you know, physics, right? How would we, these are things that if we didn't know the answer to, if we didn't study these fields, we wouldn't be able to develop therapeutics or robots or any, none of that, none of that would have been possible. And so, you know, I worked at Pfizer when I was uh, over, that was the only time I ever worked in industry. I worked at Pfizer for, for a summer. And what I noticed was that a lot of the scientists in Pfizer would literally just, they would get together and they would read academic papers, like basic biology papers. And they would say, hey, that looks like an interesting drug target. That looks like an interesting drug target. Let's study, let's take that and build a drug on it, right? It's, even though these, the academics that did that work, they don't know that. They don't know that people at drug companies are looking at their work. They're just doing their work and they're just trying to solve questions. You know, they're failing, they're succeeding sometimes, they're doing their best. But then industry depends on it. You know, the free, transfer of knowledge, the ability to something that we don't do well enough in science is publish negative results, even though we should do that more, you know, the, but, we, but really the free passage of knowledge is so critical for us to progress forward in technological development. Because, you know, if we knew what didn't work, because someone didn't, couldn't get it to work, that'll make us look at things that will actually work. It crosses off things that don't work, right? Like we, if we don't have that freedom, we're not going to be able to advance. And I want to be a part, I want to be at the, the place in this whole, like, you know, a spectrum where I can do what, solve any problem I want. And I have the ability to fail. I have the ability to succeed. And if I succeed, I can go out and like make it useful to society through a company. But there's so many levels of failure there. You can fail, just say, Abhigyan, you instead of you instead of going to your PhD or doing grad school, you went to industry, right? Um, or you know you came up with a great idea and did a startup. What if that startup fails? What do you? I mean, it's likely startups like ninety nine percent of the time don't work, right? Because they you have to try something, but it fails. What are you gonna do? I always ask the person who goes away from academia. I'm like, what are you gonna do if your startup fails, right? Um, they're like, well, start another startup. I'm like, okay, but like. I like to think that the industry and corporate world is not as kind to failure. I mean, that's actually true. They're not as kind to failure as academia is. Academia is not perfect. As you mentioned, we have to do a lot to improve the opportunities and the diversity in academia. But it is, I think I have the most hope in what academic academia can accomplish. And that's why I want to stay here. This was an amazing anecdote that you narrated, and this was something that you actually shed into light. Academia, compared to a lot of different fields, actually offers a lot more flexibility. Yes, we have work to do, but compared to others, it's not as if if you fail, you just get fired off. Or even if you sort of try to shed light on the failures of you or your company or anyone else's, you are just sort of struck off. So that's right. something that Academia and the way it works. So, as you, as you said, so yeah. So yeah. Finally, I just want to ask you. So, 
you have been someone who has been incredibly successful in what you have been doing in academia and science and all you have had some incredible mentors you have worked in some fantastic research labs and all so have you ever sort of been a bit apprehensive about yourself have you ever felt like an imposter or have you been sort of bothered about something or not being good enough sometimes you know i think i think that imposter syndrome is something i've carried with myself a lot uh through my especially i mean if you can imagine i came from dartmouth as a religion major to mit uh as and that was like i really felt out of place i'll begin you know i i was like you know not felt like i could even do any science well um really it's 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 a constant battle uh about self confidence that everyone has you know not just me but other scientists too um i think the what i the real the way i have been still able to accomplish and and solve useful questions in spite of my imposter syndrome is by you know is by is by maybe having an uh an unhealthy but uh you know overtly uh like optimistic view of what i can accomplish i envision that hey why not me right yeah i may be like this average scientist or under like i'm not i didn't i was definitely like maybe like bottom half of my intel class at mit right like i was definitely not like the smartest kid at mit but i told myself why not you you know when you any undergrad at any institution you should ask yourself why not you you could do anything why does that really smart person have to be the one that solves all the big problems that gets all the opportunities you put yourself out there really what i i think the reason why i like that we were able to solve these questions was because we did not um when we saw that we were you know the underdogs in the field of crispr for example um it's easy to say that okay we're not going to do this right and too often scientists do that they try to find only the tiny thing that they're good at right but you really need to say hey i am unique i think uniquely everyone has their unique approaches to different questions why not me why not my approach why not try my approach for these to solve these questions and if you have that confidence even if it's not warranted even if you're like the dumbest person on earth i don't know like i'm sure no one is everyone is smart in their own way you you still need to believe in yourself it it it's it's it sounds so cliche right that like that like you just maybe like you just have to believe that you can be you know the 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 most impactful scientist you can possibly be at all times i i i still believe that there should be no you know student graduate student that can accomplish problems better than i can even though that's completely false you know like but i believe that and that allows me to solve problems and put myself out there you know contact uh professors who i want to work with confidence is very important and um and it's easy to be feel like you're an imposter but don't let that feeling cloud what you're capable of doing you know you can believe you're an imposter but keep fighting that belief you know keep showing to yourself why like i i had to do that a lot i had to show myself that i am not like an a subpar scientist i i can do great things and and i take risks you know like like if you put yourself in a situation that you can take take risk you're a young scientist yourself obigyan you know i when i was your age i was like 
no one's i don't have to make money right now i don't have to like you know find a career path right now take whatever risks you can find what you're good at and 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 maybe it'll come if it doesn't work great it's okay it's okay the goal is to keep putting yourself out there and never give up on yourself um you know like like it's so cliche i know i'm talking like i'm a motivational speaker but i'm not what i'm saying is that it actually works and it worked for me and i think it can work for anyone because i'm nobody's really special honestly that's a wonderful piece of advice you have shared so finally on that note i'd like to ask you as a random box podcast tradition which three people would you like to come and divulge their experience in their own random box yeah you know um i i love this question because there's so many people that have had huge impacts on me but i also feel like you really want to talk with to people who have uh, you know very unique uh, backgrounds so may have approached questions from a different perspective you know of course someone i really think you should contact if you ever get a chance and who is a real inspiration to me is george church um he is an inspirational figure in his own right but he also you know has a really unique ability to talk to young scientists and engage them and have them believe in big things right like like that's something that i i i really appreciate um if i had to like describe and if i had to have anyone else i would definitely ask some i definitely look at someone not necessarily someone like dr fauci but maybe someone who who took um uh you know a different a different approach to science who did not say i'm going to just continue doing it but i'm going to start communicating it um uh like the, this question is it's very difficult it's like i i would I, if you could get someone like dr fauci on the conversation um let me by uh, i had the name right in my head um someone who is you know really good at communicating the science less so about doing it um i'll get back to you on that abi i'm sorry i've not that minds blanking but like like really someone who's all about communication and who's left science to to, to communicate the work um i think the the final person that i would really suggest uh you bring on is is uh we have a there's a there's a at MIT there's a um a, a man who was a scientist and now became a religious thought leader um but utilizes uh utilizes his scientific background to inform his uh to inform his uh current uh current work in religion his name is Tenzin Priyadarshi um he is a really uh really cool guy who i have found really influential in how i think because i come from a religious like religion background to science and he did the opposite and so i'm always curious to know why he did that and how his uh scientific background informed his religion um i think that he would be an excellent person to have on your podcast um um excellent person to just talk to and i think you can actually have a good conversation with him that's some incredible names you have given and thanks to lord this has been a wonderful conversation the past hour or so we have touched upon minor topics right from the fallacy of prizes to the incredible work you have been doing with crispr and right now how you are battling at the front lines of the pandemic and the ever prescient advice that you have shared thanks a lot for sparing your time and indulging us in a very fascinating random walk Thank you so much Abhigyan. Thank you thank you everyone for listening.